We've said before that a lot of us have this idea that Jesus is our Savior, but not many of us have the idea that Jesus is our King. We believe in Jesus as Savior, but we do not honor Him as King through the way that we respond to Him. He's our, our Savior, and that's been driven home to us through many, many years of evangelistic crusades, which have done much good. But as time has gone on, the idea of Jesus as King has little by little been reduced to the idea that He's King. But we don't talk about and think about Him as our King, as the, our commander, if you will, as the one who is in charge of us. And so we come up with all kinds of ideas as to who Jesus is. Kevin DeYoung wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition a while ago, and he just gave a number of different ways that we look at Jesus. There's the Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges. There's the Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart. There's the therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls and the Seahawks game today, which some of you didn't, you didn't come to church and you're going to listen to this on podcast. Shame on you. Uh, yeah, you, you, that you, you have a touchdown Jesus. I'm sorry. You, that's your, anyway, I have it recorded. Do not tell me. And don't watch the game during the sermon, all right? All right, during worship, I don't care. But uh, uh, all right, there, there's martyr Jesus, who's a good man who died a cruel death. There's gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Imagine a world without religion and help us all, re, uh, all to remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential and reach for the stars and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within and listening ambu ambiguously to spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, uh, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can... Uh, walk on mountains. You know, think of the Josh Groban song. You raise me up, so I can. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's that's that Jesus. That's a, that's their worship song. Okay. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arm around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. That's a creepy song. All right, you might love it. <laughs> There's so many uh, creepy Christian songs that you just wonder, what are non-believers thinking that we're talking about right now? Because this is overly intimate. All right, okay. So there's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people and stuff. And then there's the real Jesus. So it's not just that uh, all of us believe that he's Savior, but I, I think that that's where many evangelicals who are uh, thinking rightly end up landing, but then we still are forgetting the idea that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And as king, he has the ability to tell us what to do. And how do we respond to that? Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this series called uh, Essentials. And Essentials is really, it's the, the essentials of, of the Christian faith. It's 
in essence, what do we uh, as the church want to be working on right here and right now as Outward Church? And so at Outward Church, we say uh, that we want to make disciples who love Jesus and live outward. To love Jesus means that we are marked by his story. Like it's, it's indelibly marked in our life. Like the story of Jesus, the gospel, is in our life. We're marked by his story. We're marked by his people. And we are marked by his rule. Now I told you last week I had to finish up uh, my sermon from last week because I started preaching out of Ephesians again and it went too long. And so, uh, But really what I'm going to do, I'm going to go on to his rule because I think they're uh, incredibly connected there. His story and his people, I'm sorry, his, uh, his people and his rule are both very much connected. So this week is, we're talking about his rule and what does it mean to be marked by his rule. John uh, chapter 14 Verses 15 through 24 give us a little bit of an idea of what this looks like. So John 14 says, that, verse 15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. This is the Holy Spirit he's talking about. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is God's promise always to us. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will be with you. That's God saying to us, I'm going to be with you through Jesus uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, we talk about the idea that we love the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. We think, you know, we're, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, and many times we read this passage and we say, oh, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think what it's talking about is it's Jesus saying, hey, Do what I say. Obey me. Listen to my words. I'm giving you the helper, but I gave you the helper for a reason, and that is you got to obey. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. How many of us can say, I love Jesus? But the fact of the matter is, is that I haven't paid any attention to obeying Jesus sometimes. Or perhaps it just doesn't happen. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that shame? What do you do with that guilt? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Judas, not Iscariot, not the bad guy, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who, the fathers who sent me. So here is Jesus. He has some pretty stiff words for us. I don't think we spend enough time in a passage like that. That the idea behind being somebody who is a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, who says, I love Jesus... Not Republican or Democrat or boyfriend Jesus or any or touchdown Jesus or whatever, but I love the Jesus as presented in the scriptures. And Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, here's the thing commands are made by kings, commands are made by rulers. 
commands are given to us by people who have authority over us. And so, what is this all about? What does this mean? Think back all the way back to the garden. And I know we always go back there and then we just talk through Genesis. And, and, but it's, it's absolutely essential that we understand this. If you go back to the fall, instead of honoring God as their authority, instead of obeying God, Adam and Eve disobey God. They partake of the fruit that God told them not to. And they essentially say this, I want to be king. I want to be ruler. I want to be more glorious than God. And I think I can achieve that in my life by taking my life in my own hands. And I want to be an individual. I want to rule my own life. You saw in the story of the garden between Adam and Eve what happens as a result. When they leave uh, the idea of God being king, God being their authority, and living in righteousness uh, toward him, living rightly for him, what happens is this, is that they sin and then they themselves are separated. So they're not just separated between them and God, they're, they're separated between each other. And so then they begin to blame each other for their sin. And it brings separation. So now you have not just uh, one kingdom and not just two kingdoms, now you got at least three kingdoms. Adam's kingdom, Eve's kingdom, and then God's kingdom. You have these three different kingdoms. A little hint here. Your marriage has trouble because you have two people fighting for their own kingdoms. Hint, it's not about one of you gaining the ascendancy over the other one. It's about both of you living in submission to the true king. Side note there. What happens as a result? Shame comes from sin. So shame comes and distorts everything about us. Because of the sin that we have done and the sin that is also done to us, shame distorts everything. And so now we have all of these people all over this world who are shameful. You go a little bit further in Genesis, just after the fall, Genesis 3.15, and God gives a, an incredible promise. He says that the seed of the woman is essentially going to come and save the world. And so in Genesis, when we talked through that recently, we were, talk, we were following the line, the seed of the woman. And what we find out is a little bit of what we were just singing about just uh, a minute ago is that seed of that woman, that person is coming through this family, this true family. And ultimately it leads us to Genesis 49 verse 8 where it's talking about Judah. And it's, it's not just a prophecy about Judah, but who's coming from Judah. It says, uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 10, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to, who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Do you see what that just said? From Judah is going to come a ruler. We were just singing about the lion of Judah who conquered the grave. We're singing about Jesus this is talking about Jesus as the king with a scepter and the ruler staff between his feet. Tribute is going to come to him. He's going to be honored, glorified, and so forth. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the people who are following this king are going to obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. You look at Jesus when he comes onto the scene. The very first time that he begins to preach, what ends up happening is this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is Jesus saying, I am the king that has been promised since the very beginning. Since the beginning of time, really. But we see it in Genesis 3.15. We see it in Genesis 49. And we follow it all the way through the Old Testament. The story of God in his redemption through Jesus Christ. Who is king? Jesus is the king. Now, what is our problem with that? Well, here's the problem. This kind of gets back to the different types of Jesus that each of us seem to have in our minds. In John chapter 4, there's a story about Jesus, uh, one of his first miracles, it says. In John chapter 4, it talks about how Jesus is at this wedding party and someone forgot the beer. <laughs> or they didn't bring enough. Or they were running out, something like that. Running out of wine. And so his mom comes up to him and says, Dude, could you, could you like cook something up for us? And Jesus is like, What? What do you think I am? I'm not 7-Eleven. Like, like, you could... No, he didn't say that. He, he said, it's not, my time has not yet come, something to that effect. But what does Jesus do? Jesus makes the best wine. Jesus provides. Tim Keller says that he's the Lord of the wine in this essence. And oftentimes we look at Jesus as the Lord of the wine. He's the great provider. He comes through with miracles. When we're at a party, he brings the best stuff. And so now, from here on out, now we're basically saying, my life is a party. Hey, Jesus, would you bring the wine? Bring the wine, bring the wine, bring the wine. Now Jesus does bring the wine. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. But the next story just after this is Jesus going into the temple. And he sees the money changers and the people who are selling livestock. And they're basically ripping people off in the temple, in God's house. And Jesus makes a whip. And he comes through and he, he's whipping people and he's saying, get out of my house. And this is what Tim Keller says. He says, you know, we love the Lord of the wine, but not many of us like the Lord of the whip. So here's the question. Jesus brings the wine. Jesus brings the blessing. When we go to the Lord's table, the wine or the grape juice in our, in our uh, instance... The wine represents the blood of Jesus. He brings his blood. He pours it out for us. We love the Lord of the wine. But the one who can come into our lives and tell us what to do, are we okay with that Jesus? Are you okay with that Jesus? We like the Lord of the wine, but do we love the Lord of the whip? See, Jesus is not just our savior, He's our king. And the question is, why would you want to live in submission to him? Why would you want to live in submission, in obedience to Jesus? That's, that's the first thing that we have to really understand. Why would I even want this? Well, he, here's the thing. Is that when you were created, you were created for 
Jesus. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he says this, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Like Jesus says this, like sexual immorality, sex outside of my intended use for your body and for marriage and for that physical act, it, it is an unintended use. The use of your body is for the Lord. Now, how would you even unpack what that means? Like, I was just created for the Lord? I was created just to be with him or like, and him with me? Or what, what does this even mean? It essentially means this, that you were created to live in the context of, of that which you were created for. Like, you were created to have deep and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that relationship with him, to live in submission to him. To live in obedience to him. Now many of us, many, many, many of us don't really get that. In fact, when we come up to the obedience stuff, sometimes we dismiss it so easily simply by saying, but Jesus saved me from my disobedience. Yes, he did, but he saved you for obedience. Not that you would live in perfection, but that you would live in progressive sanctification that you would live in submission to him, that you would progressively become more and more and more like him. Now, how do we become like him? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we have to have a comparison. If you're steeped in the world, if all you ever know and all you ever see and all you really experience is a relationship with your friends that are not deeply into Jesus and his people, there is no comparison. It's like asking a fish a question, saying, fish, what's it like to live in water? And the fish is like, what the heck do you think? I, it, I, I don't know. I live in water all the time. I've jumped out a couple of times. I don't know what it's like to live in the air. There's no comparison to it. You and I have such a difficult time really understanding what it means to become like Jesus because we've never been around Jesus. We have no comparison. There is no comparison. There's no way to say, um, you know what, I love Jesus and I'm going to live by his commandments because I don't know Jesus and I don't know his commandments. Because I don't really know him and because I don't understand him and because I haven't experienced his personality and I don't understand his body, I'm not really connected with who he is. And this is what American Christianity has turned into. So how does change happen? How does change from being somebody who's solely about Jesus as Savior, how, how does change happen for the person that doesn't even know Jesus that's just basically like, I don't know, like, I, uh, you know, I just have this weight of sin on my life. I just have all these issues that are going on in me, and I don't know where they're coming from. And the reality is, is that that weight of shame is on you. And how do you come out of that weight of shame? It begins, number one, with knowing who Jesus is and seeing your life in comparison with his perfect life. And basically what you could say is you, you could see this reality that Jesus is holy and I am not. 
Jesus is completely righteous, and I am not righteous. And yet, I'm totally loved. I'm completely loved. And so Jesus went to the cross for me, and so we repent of our sin, and we come into relationship with him. But then, how does change happen? D.A. Carson says this, Mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for him can do that. Duty, white-knuckling it, trying to make it happen, will not bring it about. In fact, there's a lot of people in here today that are self-motivated toward being righteous and being good. This is why Jesus says about the Pharisees, he says, you travel over land and sea, Pharisees, to make a single convert, but in the end, you make him twice the son of hell as he was. And what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, you have taught someone how to be good outside of perfect relationship with me. You have taught someone how to make life happen. If you think for a second that our church isn't filled with Pharisees like me and like you, you've got another thing coming. The Pharisees, I, we were at a conference yesterday, heard a great statement. It's, the Pharisees aren't those weird people who just think that they're uh, high and mighty and make everything happen and that they're perfect in every way in their life. The Pharisees are me. I'm a Pharisee. I'm not like alongside of Jesus. Yeah, you and me, Jesus, we're in this. Those dumb Pharisees. No, I'm the Pharisee. I'm the person who thinks that I can make it happen through my duty, through making things happen on my own. And there's so many of us that make it into the church today who have strong willpower, who have the ability to say no, who don't have uh, external sins that are happening to us. There's so many of us that are so good at covering up that oftentimes we just attract so many people. So it's not about us putting pressure on the will. It's not Jesus saying to you, hey, get your act together. What Jesus is saying is that if there is truly love for me, what is going to happen in response is that you will be living in obedience, progressively sanctified like me. You will live under my rule and my reign as king in your life. This is what Jesus is saying. And so this is in part why he says, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'm going to send you a helper. And who is the helper? The helper is the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get into living by the power of the Holy Spirit today, but what we do know is that God gives us this mysterious power. He gives us himself. The Holy Spirit isn't an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a he. And so we have the Holy Spirit to help us in this. In fact, the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, because I know that you put faith in Jesus Christ and that you love God's people and that you're connected with them, I, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul says the only way that this changed, the only way that you're going to move, the only way that this is going to happen is that I'm going to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would open up your eyes and that He would give you wisdom and that He'd reveal to you the knowledge of who? Jesus. That what, what is the Holy Spirit's role in your life and my life? The Holy Spirit's role is to show us Jesus, not to just give you a list of rules to follow. And he goes on. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. It's, it's a, a future hope that I'm looking at and I'm looking toward and the Spirit is empowering me to think about my future hope, not my present hope, not the fact that I don't have a relationship, that I don't have a house, that I don't have the car that I want, that I don't have the paycheck. It's not my present hope where I have all of those things and more. And so I forget about God. It's saying, I want you to know about this future hope and the power of the Holy Spirit which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is kingly language. This is the, the Christ who, uh, and, and this power, that comes from his resurrection. The same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave is working in you and in me to bring about this hope that we have in God, not that I have hope in me and my ability to fulfill what God has given me to do, but that God is working in me and through me in the same way, in the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the, in the one to come. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the king. He's far above all rule and all authority. He's far above all governments, our government, every government in the world. He's far above every political party, every football team, every boyfriend or girlfriend, everything that you could possibly have. His kingdom is greatest, and you and I are stuck on this kingdom right here and right now, my kingdom, and how I'm being served and how I'm being obeyed, and then we enlist God to be a handmaiden, a servant, and say, come and make me some wine. And never... Look to him as the king of kings, as the king who's far above all things. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, how do we see change in our lives? How do we become progressively more like Jesus Christ? It is in the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the body of Christ. You cannot learn to love Jesus by obeying his commands 
by living an isolated life. Last week's sermon is very important. But you cannot learn how to live under his rule and his reign on your own. It will end up only, you will not have comparison. You're just a fish in water. And you don't understand what it's like to be around Jesus himself. To be around the person of Jesus Christ. Through the body of Christ and in his word. You may be in the word But to rightly be able to understand what the word is saying and what God is saying to you takes the body of Christ, takes God's people. Now, why is that important? There is a a verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Now, let's do 1, 2. We still got time. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul just laid out a bunch of theology. And so then he's kind of, he's summarized all that. And and he's going to say this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I'm appealing to you not based on the damnation of God. I'm not appealing to you to do better in your life based on... based on anything else other than the mercy of God. How do we follow Jesus? How do we live under his rule and his reign? We're living and we're following him according to his mercy. God, our response to him, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why? Because I have loved you so much. I've poured out my mercy on you. I've loved you so much when you hated me, when you wanted to kill me, indeed when you did kill me on that cross with your sin. And I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is the same thing. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why would you love me? Because I've given you so much mercy which is your spiritual worship. How do we worship Jesus? Oh, it's going to worship con- conferences or worship, uh, worship at, at the church. That's how I worship him. No. That's a piece of it. Yes, we love to do that. We love to drill the truths of Scripture in our life, but the, the truths of Scripture being drilled into my mind are for everyday life. They are for me becoming who I am not. Or actually, I should say, becoming who I am, who God say, says that I am. It is for me presenting my body as a living sacrifice that is holy and, and acceptable to God, to the king, and that this is how I worship him. And then he says this, do not be conformed to this world. Our world's words to you and I is conform or be shamed, conform, or be minimized, conform, or be made fun of, conform, and we, we have lots of blessing for you, but be transformed, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, how are our minds renewed to the point where we live lives of worship 
that are a living sacrifice and that are holy and acceptable to God, how do we become the people in the power of the Holy Spirit that are uh, encouraged and driven towards this love? Well, there's a couple of things that, that are scientific here, which I don't get into very often. Uh, however, I've, I've read a fair amount on this. I've hear, heard counselors, when I've gone to counseling before, I've heard some of the best counselors talk about this idea of something called neuroplasticity. Now, you may know more about this than I do, but my understanding of it is this. is Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to be molded and shaped. It's not that it's rigid and stuck in one way, but that it can be molded and shaped. Which means this, that you can be conformed to this world. And that's what happens in our, in our everyday life. Our brains have been conformed to this world. And that has seeped into the church to the point where we say, you know what, if it's convenient for me, then I'll come. If you have the programs that I want, then I'll be a part of it. As long as we don't go too deep, as long as we don't get into my stuff, then I'll be a, a part of that. And so we have been conformed to this world. And neuroplasticity talks about that. And here's another concept. It's called mirror neurons. Now, there's been some studies done that show that we have mirror neurons in our minds, in our brains. And what happens is this, is that when, as a child, when you're growing up, what's happening is this, is you're mimicking the behavior, whether it's in speech, it's in looks, it's in the way that you feel like your parent feels about you, or what have you, mirror neurons are playing a part in that. And we begin to mirror the behavior that we see. We begin to mirror the smiles that we see from a parent, or the, or, or the frowns, or what have you. But those mirror neurons don't just stop when we're kids. They continue on through our life, and they're continually working in our minds to the point where we have become people that are uh, burdened by shame because our world is burdened by shame. And our world says, hide your shame and do whatever it takes to leave your shame behind. And so we've become more and more and more conformed to this world as we hide our shame or we announce our shame and say, you know what, it doesn't matter what I do, I'll do whatever I want. We've become our own king. We've become our own God. We are submissive to ourselves and no one else. And you and I both see the chaos that has happened as we've mirrored one another and we've been conformed to this world through neuroplasticity and mirror neurons. Here's the other side of that. You do not have to be conformed to this world any longer. You do not have to be conformed to this world anymore. Now, we don't even need the science to say that this is possible. But it's great when science proves that this is possible. And so what this is saying is this. What I'm talking about here is this. Our ability to be conformed and to the pattern of this world can also be reversed to the point where I will be conformed into the image of his son. I will be conformed into being more like Jesus. I'll be conformed into being like him. Now, how does that happen? What, what, what takes place here? Well, first of all, I've got to be with Jesus. If I'm not going to be conformed to the world, then what that means is that even though I'm living in the world, I've got to take on the nature of Jesus Christ. 
which means I'm reading his word and specifically the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm reading those Gospels and I'm understanding the personality of this person who is God, my king. And I'm looking at what my king is like and who he is. I don't know if you've ever read somebody so much that you begin to think and feel like them. I, I love to do this. I love to get into uh, like an author or what. Even when I'm just reading books about business and so forth, I'm trying to understand how that author thinks. And I'm, and I'm trying to understand who they are until I'm taking on their image in the way that business works in a sense, in the church. And church is not a business, but if you don't run it like one, you're an idiot. So we'll just say that. We become like the people that we read. And Jesus isn't just like a story or a fable. He's a person to be conformed into the image of. Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of my mind can happen through person-to-person contact. And one other thing as you think about this, and that is that, yes, I have Christian friends that are on Facebook, but Facebook is not an adequate mirror of who Jesus is. It takes face-to-face contact. Listening to someone else talk about Jesus is good, but it's not the best. The best is reading the words of Jesus. Not only the words of Jesus, but the word of God in totality. Not just the Gospels, but yes, the Gospels. And so we begin to understand this person and we begin to mirror this person. And then I come to the community of faith. I come into the community of faith and I'm hanging out with you and you and you and you, whoever you four, five people are, and we hang out and you have been reading about Jesus And he's like coming off of the page so that when you're reading about him, you're just going, man, I see him. I'm getting into his head. He's getting into my head. I and you and you and me. See how that works? And when I come and I hang out with you, when I hang out with the body of Christ, I begin to mirror who Christ is in my life. I begin to mirror who he is. To the point where what's happening in me is that I am being changed from one degree of glory to another. That I am being changed as I get to know this person. That the Holy Spirit specifically has been put into my life to reveal Jesus to me. I begin to mirror him. My mind is being transformed by him as I get to know him. And so what keeps, us, what keeps us from this whole process? I gave you a quote last week from Kurt Thompson that I'm going to read to you again. But the answer first is this, is that when you and I are living in shame and we do not reveal who we are to the people around us, when we're not showing who we actually are, when we're carrying around this baggage and no one really sees who I am and nobody understands who you are, what's not happening is we're not mirroring each other. We're not really seeing who each other are. We're not really in relationship. 
and change can't happen on that basis. And so Jenny Allen had asked Kurt Thompson this question, who's a, uh, a counselor, a doctor, a PhD, and she says, how do people change? And he says, people change by being willing to vulnerably allow themselves to be known comprehensively over time by God and by others, stepping into the invitation of the next courageous thing that God has called them to do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The next courageous thing that God has commanded them to do as they are freed from the shame that has kept them in their negative behavioral cycles in the first place. Now, if you go back with me and you look at John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you, you're, you're going to do what I say. Now, that statement on its face says, man, I don't know that I can. And Jesus says, I have enabled you by the power of the Spirit. I, I'm telling you about the Spirit next. I'm giving you the power of the Spirit. And it is through the love that you have for the body of Christ that I have enabled you to live under my rule and my reign as king. And so the question is this. Is Jesus your savior? If he is, that is good. That is great. But as his savior, as, as savior of you, as your savior, I should say, because of the mercy that he has given to you, by forgiving you of all of your sin on the cross, because of that mercy in your life, will you not live a life that is holy and pleasing to God in the power of the Holy Spirit as you're connected with the body of Christ, as you're connected with his people and you're mirroring their behavior as they're mirroring the behavior of Christ to you, and we're changing and changing and changing and changing. This is how change happens in our life. But it can't happen when we have a, when I personally am living for my kingdom. All of us have a kingdom. Think about the ways that you get angry. Think about the things that you medicate yourself with. Think about the, the things that give you the most joy. Think about the fact that when things are going well in your life, that you probably forget about God. When you have the job that you want, when you have the things that you feel like you need and it's real easy to get busy and just be like, God who? Jesus what? And it's because your kingdom is being glorified. God has been gracious to you. He's given you mercy. And yet, not in response to his mercy, you're not giving back to him you're essentially living in your own kingdom. You're saying, Lord God, thank you so much for giving me all of my, the, the desires of my heart for my kingdom. And I'm just gonna go ahead and do my own thing. See, our anger comes out of the fact that our kingdom oftentimes has been threatened. I mean, there's good times to have anger, for sure. 
But many times our anger in the context of marriage, our anger in the context of relationships happens because of this, because you've threatened my kingdom. And do you see, do you see the chaos that's coming into our world from that? As you're living for your kingdom and I'm living for my kingdom, we have a, opposing kings and opposing kingdoms. But do you see the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God that we talked about last week? What is that unity of faith? The unity of faith is, is this, is that you and I both, you and I together are living for one king. I'm not living for my kingdom and you for yours, but we together are living for the king. The king. And that's when change can happen for us personally. And that's when change can happen in our church. And it is only because Jesus went to the cross for us that that's even been afforded to us. I wonder if you, if you remember the, the passage from Isaiah. Where Isaiah the prophet, he has a vision of of God, and it's this, this crazy vision in the temple, and he's seeing all of this stuff and this train of his robe, and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a, a people of unclean lips, and I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the king. And then God comes, and he, he takes a, a a coal and he touches his lips and the coal is Jesus and Jesus purifies him and what happens in Isaiah's life next is that he that God says who, who, whom shall I send who will go for us and Isaiah says send me send me the, the king asks him who's going to go who's going to go Who's going to be a part of this? Who, who's going to go in this way? Do you have a realization of what God has done for you? Do you see the king? And when you see that king and you realize how perfect and how holy he is, do you not see the reality that you are ruined without his coal coming to your lips and purifying your life through Jesus Christ? And that in response, you get to live in obedience to him. That's my prayer for us, that we would live under his rule and his reign in the context of his people while we glory in his story because we love Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning I, uh, I'm praying for those of us here that are sensing on some level that they have a kingdom of their own that they've been living for and that in some ways maybe it is working out well but in a lot of other ways it's not and so Lord I pray that they would see and know and understand that it's possible to be somebody who's received you as savior and yet not living for you as king. So they haven't lived in response. They haven't loved you by obeying your 
commandments. Lord, I pray that you would sear into their hearts the reality that it is possible by the power of your Holy Spirit in relationship with your church for them to be obedient and to love you and to walk with you. Lord, for those that came in this morning without relationship with you, that have never come to the conclusion that they have sinned against a holy God and that they live in sinfulness, and yet you love them so incredibly that you've shown your love for them on the cross, that you died for them, and you, as a result, want to take all of their sin and shame, and you want to give them all of your righteousness so that they can live a new life. Lord, I pray that they'd experience that and as a result, live with you as king. Lord, we pray for change in our hearts, pray for change in our families, pray for change in our relationships. Lord, we pray for change in this church as we grow in you. It's in your name we pray, amen.